Welcome to Open to Hope Radio with your host, Dr. Gloria Horsley, brought to you by the Open to Hope Foundation with the mission of helping people find hope after loss. This show has been edited for your convenience. Now, Open to Hope Radio. topic today is a next of kin, a brother's journey to wartime Vietnam, and my guest is Tom Riley. Tom has a degree in psychology and has served in the U.S. Army as a military policeman and a criminal investigator. At age seven, Tom's mother and father died in separate incidences, and his older brother, Ron, became his guardian and his idol. In July of 1907, Ron died in Vietnam. Tom, at age 19, journeyed to war-turn Vietnam to find answers. Today, Tom is going to share with us his rendering story, with a heartfelt story with us, and his, which he also gives us in his wonderful best-selling book, Next of Kin, A Brother's Journey to Wartime Vietnam. Tom, welcome to Healing the Grieving Heart. Thank you, Gloria. It's good to be here with you today. It's great to have you on the show. I must say, in reading your book, it's an amazing book, and it's really a Tom Sawyer kind of story. Well, I, <laughs> I'm flattered that uh, I'd be compared to somebody like Mark Twain. Um, it, it is a heartfelt story. It's a heart-rendering story. It's uh, it's written uh, with a lot of love for my older brother. And uh, you had mentioned my parents dying, and uh, uh, the first part of the book uh, covers a young boy's reaction to the death of, uh, of both parents dying. Uh, they died a week apart, as a matter of fact. Yeah, could you tell our audience about what they died of? It's very. Um, maybe, did your mom die of a broken heart? Do you think her death was related to your dad dying? I I think it was possible. Um, my father died. Uh, he was a, as I say in my in the first chapter of Next of Kin, he was a hard working, hard drinking Irishman, and uh, he worked uh, almost two full time jobs all the time. And uh, at age forty nine, he suffered a stroke was taken to a hospital and, uh, and died uh, three days later. And this took place in July of 1958, and I was seven years old at the time. And seven days later, uh, after the funeral for my father and after all the, the relatives had gone their separate ways and so on, my mother was sitting in a chair talking to me, and she was age 42 at the time. She put her hand to her head and said, I have a terrible headache, and she never got the word headache completely out. She had died of a, of a massive cerebral hemorrhage. And uh, when I was studying psychology, I did come across an article one time in one of the medical journals about uh, you know, how grief does affect uh, the physical nature of a person and if they're susceptible to anything that seven to ten days after the, the death of, a, of a, a relative, especially a spouse, mm-hmm. there's a tremendous shock wave that overcomes a survivor. And Mm-hmm. Uh, my mother had very high blood pressure, and so that was possibly a contributing factor. Uh, the grief. Wow! Yeah. Um, how did you cope with that as a seven-year-old? It must. Have, uh, did she, Did she actually die there in the chair, or did she? Did they get her to the hospital, or you know? That's she, just yeah, incredible. Yeah, she actually died in the chair, and uh, I didn't know this at the time. Of course, uh, uh, it was at the home of uh, my much older sister, a, a grown sister at the time. I was the baby of the family at age seven, and uh, so I was quickly ushered outside, and uh, the next thing I saw was the paramedics arriving and so on, and uh, a couple hours later I was informed that, uh, you know, my mother was gone. And coping with it, um, the death of my father did not strike me 
as severely as the death of my mother. I wasn't as close to my father as I was to my mother. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was always off working somewhere and doing all this. I, I, I barely knew my father, even though we had a, a fully functioning family. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was, I was very curious about the whole escapade of the funeral home and, and the burial and all this with my father. And then I, when my mother died, I felt very alone. Mm-hmm. And, and I knew oh, even goodness, though I had, yeah. I had older siblings, I knew that I was pretty much on my own. It couldn't have been a very safe, feeling like a very safe world to you. No, it wasn't. Uh, you know, when you lose both parents in, in such a short period, uh, it didn't seem, and, and I guess you're the first one to ever mention it that way to me, but uh, you're, you're exactly right. It didn't seem like a very safe world. However, I had an older brother named Ron. He was 13 years older than me, and I knew as long as I had him, I still had some safety in the world. I knew that somebody would look out for me. Now, you even knew that when you went to the farm. I, I know your uh, brother-in-law, you know, you were working hard on the farm, which I'm from that kind of background, and I know kids, my friends who were on the farm, were milking cows in the morning before school. You know, it's a, it's a hard life. Yeah, I, had, uh, I was taken from this, this nice little small town uh, childhood, and uh, I went to live with my older sister and her husband on a dairy farm, and this is in central Wisconsin, and uh, I was worked quite hard. And uh, it was my brother-in-law's uh, work ethic was was very sound and very stable, and uh, I was I almost became a, a hired hand uh, on the farm, so it was it was quite a change for me. But uh, uh, I still had my brother Ron, who even was, then, uh, when you were on the farm, yeah. you knew. Yeah, even then, I knew I knew it wasn't the right life for me on the farm, and. Uh, Ron was a career soldier at the time, so he was always in a different part of the world, and I would live from one episode of his leave to the next episode of his leave. He would come home once a year, every six months or whatever for a few days, and uh, those were the highlights of my of my childhood then because uh, we became very close, even though he was physically in a different part of the world most of the time. Mm-hmm. Well, yes, tell our audience about getting on your bike. I mean, that is an incredible story. Deciding that you couldn't be on the farm anymore. Get it, how old are you? Twelve. Uh, I, I was about thirteen. Thirteen. And, You've got uh, a lovely picture of you with your bike in the bus. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Getting on your bike and riding off. What, how many miles? Well, I became a runaway. I decided I, I had to. I decided I was not going to be a farmer after all. And uh, <laughs> and uh, it was quite a harsh life on the farm. And uh, I didn't get along very well with my brother-in-law and so on. And so. Um, I had hinted to my older brother at one point that uh, I needed to change my life, and he saw that it was difficult for me living on this farm as well. And so one night when I was, uh, I think it was 13 years old, uh, I just got on my, my Schwinn bike and rode 35 miles to another, another small town in central Wisconsin uh, where I had another older brother, and I stayed with him briefly and uh, then ended up in my own Small little hole in the wall. Yes, tell them about that. That's an incredible story. How long were you with your brother before you, uh, your brother, Ron rented the apartment for you, didn't he? Yes, my brother came home, uh, Ron came home from the military on emergency leave when he heard that I had, I had run away from the farm and, uh, within a couple of months. He, he, he had enough confidence in me that I could live on my own and succeed. And in a small town environment and in that time in our country's history, it, it was possible. I wouldn't recommend it today for any teenager doing that, but 
I was running to a better life the way I that's what I thought I wasn't running away to get involved in drugs and and drinking and any any of that sort of thing uh, I was running to a life that I thought I could control and make better for myself so he rented this small apartment and I could it was barely as wide as a desk I, I had to kind of uh, hold my feet in so I could sleep crossways across the end of the apartment. Uh, and for $40 a month, I, I lived surreptitiously, really. Uh, I didn't tell anybody that I lived alone. All you didn't want to bring your friends over. None of your no. friends knew. No, I didn't I didn't bring anybody over. I didn't I didn't want to blow a good thing, I guess. Right, uh, you didn't want I to went, end up in foster care or something. Yeah, exactly. Back with I didn't, and I didn't want to have to pay tuition to go to a, uh, you know, a public school. And so I just... I had this ruse that I lived with my older brother all through high school. And, and then he'd uh, go to the school with you when he came on leave, wouldn't he? Yeah, yeah, I would show him off. When he would come home on leave, I would show, show him off all over town so people would believe my story that I actually lived alone. But I, I worked two to three part-time jobs after school and on the weekends, so it was actually a pretty good life. And, and <laughs> you know what? Role. I'll have to say this story is so incredible because there's a lot of humor in it. You, it, it, it's, I mean, I found myself laughing at some of these situations that you were in. Well, I think I think it's an author's job to if he can if he can make an unknown reader who's never met him experience the emotions of laughter and sadness and crying. I think an author does his job if he does that. And since the overall topic of the book is grief and sadness, and, and my response to that, uh, I only felt it was it was proper to give the reader a break and put in some humor as well along the way. <laughs> but the fact, you know, as the, as you know, somebody who's had so much tragedy, and as I know from tragedy in my life, there is a lot of humor in it because you just have to laugh at some of these things, particularly you do such crazy things at times. Mm-hmm. And Tom, we've gone from, you've been on the farm, you've run away from home, you're now living in the city, you're um, living in this little room. Rom comes back and forth, and he is in the military. And you are now, you graduate from high school. Did he get to your high school graduation? Yes. As a matter of fact, uh, he had spent two tours in Vietnam in uh, 67, 68, and then uh, somewhere in 69. And I graduated from high school in June of 69. And he, was, he had come back and was stationed at Fort Hood, Texas for about a year. And uh, so he was fortunate enough to come to my high school graduation, and uh, uh, he was—he had always instilled in me this thing about my future. Uh, when I was even ten years old, he took me to uh, museums in Chicago and Milwaukee. He took me to a university campus, University of Wisconsin Madison. He told me this is where I needed to set my sights. That the only way he would allow for me to live on my own. Uh, with his knowledge was to keep my grades high in high school, so I remained most of the time on the honor roll and um, and worked all these part-time jobs. So he taught me, between the work ethic that I learned living on the dairy farm and what he instilled in me, uh, I learned a lot about the future and what my future was supposed to be. That's fantastic. Now tell me, um, did you miss your parents? Did you cry at night ever by yourself there? Did you, were you sad that they weren't at your graduation? Did you, did you Was there any way that you remembered them or, or through letters or anything? Or Yes, obviously I missed them. Um, their death, I think the youngness of, of Tom Riley at the time of their death, I was only seven years old, I think that, that helps a lot. 
even though you know age seven is supposedly the age of reason, um, I remembered everything distinctly and vividly. But I think because of a young, tender age, your emotions are somewhat more protected for grief. Mm-hmm. And um, so, yes, I missed them. I thought about them at my high school graduation and my my plans for going on to college the next year and so on. Um, but their their death was almost something in the past for me at that point. Uh, and I, I tried to concentrate on, on living a good life and, and succeeding for the future, and, and, and I had this older brother, Ron, that kept pushing me in that direction constantly. Now, he hadn't been to college, had he? No, he hadn't. And, <laughs> and he, he was one of these type of people that wanted something better. If, if I would have been his son rather than his younger brother, it was a typical case of, a father wanting his son to succeed more than he he did. Mm-hmm. He he never wanted me to go uh, to into the military. Uh, the only way he wanted me to go into the military was if I could have gone as an officer. And he was an enlisted man, and mm-hmm. uh, he had been in for ten years, eleven years at the time of his death. But he always wanted something better for me. Now you you went to a year of college, mm-hmm. and then you uh, tell us what happened then. Well, after my freshman year of college, and are you in the, still in the same room, by the way, when you're in college, or where did you go? No, as a matter of fact, I, I went off to college. And I actually lived in a dormitory. I, it was it was like living in a in a palace compared to my little one room apartment. And uh, you know, I got better meals and so on. And I didn't have to worry about you know where all the money came from. Uh, I had saved up money for my part time jobs to attend college. And uh, how much did you save? Uh, well, it was enough. I was a resident at the time of Wisconsin, so the tuition was uh, it was only like two hundred and fifty dollars a year or something, plus some room and board. So, um, I I had saved a lot of money up, um, and also I was receiving Social Security payments from the death of my parents uh, ever since they had died. So, oh, so that helped so you with it, your. It helped a lot. It helped a lot. Uh, but so no, I I had put in this one year of college, and then uh, I had no place to live at the end of the year. Uh, I didn't really want to go back to my little apartment, so um, I actually took a job uh, remodeling and painting this old house in a sleepy little town called Montello, Wisconsin. And uh, it was a small resort town. And uh, one day when I was up on a ladder painting this house, a military sedan pulled in to the driveway, and I was so excited. Uh, I thought it was uh, I thought it was my brother coming home from Vietnam. He had since gone to Vietnam like four months before that for his for his, another combat tour, and uh, it was kind of his idea to keep going back to Vietnam so I wouldn't have to as I became draft eligible, mm-hmm. and uh, because a, one relative at that time could actually block another one from from coming into the combat zone in the service. Oh, is that right? So that was part of his his plan. Mm-hmm. And plus, he was a soldier. He felt that a combat zone was where a soldier belonged during a war. But when this army sedan pulled into this driveway, I th- I thought it was him coming home. I could see uh, a uniform. I couldn't see the face of the driver. I could only see part of a uniform, and I, I could see some sergeant stripes, and he was a sergeant. And so I went running down the ladder, and and uh, unfortunately, it turned out not to be Ron in that car. It was actually uh, a sergeant coming to inform me of his death and hand me the that typical yellow telegram that begins, uh, we regret to inform you. Wow. And uh, the, the heart, as I mentioned in the book, I believe it's chapter 5 in the book when I talk about this, it's a very poignant chapter. Uh, the, 
the heartfelt exhilaration that I felt running down that ladder off from uh, my Yeah, you do a wonderful job house. of describing yeah. that. I felt like I was right there with you. Yeah, I, I, you know, I thought I was going to see my brother, and when I looked up in under the the bill of the service hat, I could see that it wasn't my brother. That it was it was somebody with uh, uh, he already had tears in his eyes, and he mm-hmm. was coming to tell me that my brother was dead halfway around the world, and my whole life changed that day. And um, and the the problem with that death notification was that the telegram said of non combat related causes. Mm-hmm. Now that can and you any- noticed that right away. I noticed it immediately. I read when I was able to unfold and read the telegram that afternoon. Uh, one of the things that stuck in my mind was uh, non-combat related death, and uh, you know, so all kinds of things raced through my head. You know, was he murdered? Was it suicide? Was it an accident? Was it friendly fire? Was it was it illness? What what was his cause of death? And I want to just let our uh, audience know today that we're not going to tell you what it was. <laughs> so don't be disappointed when we don't. We'll, well play around the edges, but part <laughs> of the fun of this book and part of the interest and excitement is it's the mystery. And we want you to find out the ending, you know, and, and those facts by reading the book. But anyway, we'll play around the edges, right, Tom? Right. Uh, you know, and, and you know the, the thing that I tell other people, though, is, and I don't mean to sound harsh, but dead is dead. Mm-hmm. And, but people have trouble dealing with that at first, and yeah. I know you did because I know I was reading, when I was reading it, you're getting ready to go to Vietnam. You're trying to get there. We'll tell our audience about that. And you also get, uh, what, $11,000. Was that how much you got or something? Uh, I think it, yeah, I think it was 12000 at 12, the time 000. of insurance money for my brother. I was I was the official next of kin and his beneficiary. So you had the money to go find out. Right, and, and what happened to your brother? Yeah, since I wasn't given a cause and I couldn't get an answer, I, I spent I, within seven or nine days, I believe it was, I received his body back. I went to, uh, I actually flew from Wisconsin to Oakland Army Barracks in California. Mm-hmm. I'm out in San Francisco, so yeah, yeah, and. Uh, that was a whole other thing, the big wooden box with the handles. Yes, and yes. And, I, and I don't know, just the way you write, I had to laugh because the top of it, it said head. I don't know. Yeah, there was something was, so bizarre about that. It was, it was a very bizarre experience, and, and I was told not to do this. I was told not to fly to California to fly back on the same plane with my brother's casket uh, because that just wasn't done in those days. Uh, relatives didn't come to that point of the funeral uh, situation and so but I wasn't very good at, at listening um, so <laughs> well you've done your I, own thing all your life why would you yeah I was pretty much on now. my own I was very independent at the time and and this and don't forget my frame of mind at the time I had just lost my hero my mentor right my, idol, my older brother that I loved and nothing was going to stop me from getting from getting in the way of the truth of what happened to him. And also being with his body. That's really, and you're drawn. You want to be where they are. Yes. So when I I escorted his body back, we went through the military funeral at this little little. Just to let our audience know, you didn't see his body then, but you did see it at the funeral home. Yes, I did. I saw his body at the funeral home, and he looked fine. I mean, uh, that that sounds strange, but what what I'm referring to is, it was him. There, it was him. It was him. I was, I was positive it was him. Uh, I couldn't tell by looking at him what the cause of death might have been. And all the while, 
this is going on, I'm constantly contacting the military liaison people that were assisting me as an ex of kin and so on. They didn't have any answers either. And so after about three weeks of not getting any answers, I just, just decided, the heck with it. I'm buying a ticket, and I'm flying to Vietnam, and I'm going to find out what happened to my older brother. And I know one of the places, uh, one of the, just one of the words that popped out at me in the book was when you said revenge. You know, you were thinking maybe you'd have to take revenge. You know? Yes. Yeah. Uh, again, at the time, I had no idea. All I knew was that I had a deceased brother. And, uh, you know, you, you start thinking of all kinds of things. And one of the things that popped in my, into my mind was, was he murdered? If he was murdered, I'm going to go there and I'm going to seek revenge. Right. And when you're, when you're 19, maybe you think you're not thinking as clear, clearly as you should. Well, well I think, I think a lot of people think about that revenge in the beginning, you know, for mm-hmm. lots of reasons. DWIs, you know, mm-hmm. all sorts of uh, reasons that they would like revenge. Like I mentioned earlier, I, I just couldn't get any answers as to a cause of death. And I owed it to myself for loving him and I owed it to him as helping raise me to get the answers. And uh, I wasn't suspecting any kind of a government cover-up, but then I really didn't know. Mm-hmm. I just didn't know what happened to him. And so it was out of love that I decided to take this trip to find out for myself and also to see where he died, what his final days were like, and so on. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I was, I was aware that I was going to an act of combat zone. And I tried to do this officially. I, I contacted the State Department, I wanted to find out what it would take for a civilian to go to a, uh, South Vietnam at the time to an active combat zone, and all they could tell me was, don't go. <laughs> uh, uh, I asked if, you know, they, they, they kind of had the criteria, if you were a clergyman and you wanted to go, this is what you had to do. If you were a contractor and you wanted to go, this is what you had to do. But for a grieving young love... Teenager. A teenager. Um, they had 19. no idea. Yeah, they, so... They, but they didn't they, know who they were dealing with, did no, they? they didn't know who they? No, they didn't know who they were dealing with. So I politely listened to them, and uh, I told them I would accept their advice and not go. And as soon as I hung up the phone with them, I uh, contacted my local travel agent, told them to buy me a round-trip ticket to Saigon. He thought I was totally out of my mind. Um, I also went to my local doctor in the small town and asked what shots I would need to go to a tropical climate. I didn't necessarily tell them Vietnam. And, um, I love the way you take care of yourself. <laughs> and so, so within a few days uh, of deciding that I wanted to go to Vietnam myself to see what happened uh, to my brother, uh, I had shots in, uh, in different parts of my body. Both arms were aching, and it was hard to sit for a while, but I had the cholera and typhoid shots, malaria shots, and all this kind of stuff. Um, and a few days later, I was on a Pan Am plane flying from... Chicago to San Francisco, San Francisco to Hawaii to Guam to Manila, and I ended up in Saigon. Did your uh, siblings know you were going? No, nobody knew I was going. So you, uh, so you just went off. Were you scared at all? Uh, not really. Or did I you knew. have that energy of, I'm going to do it? The you had energy, a mission, right? Yeah, I was, I was on a mission of, of love, and uh, I knew I was going to an active combat zone. I knew that there was a potential of something happening to me, uh, but I was kind of blinded to all that because I was on this one-track mission to find out what happened to my brother. So that was kind of holding you up rather than yeah. depression or crying or sadness. or I'm sure you did right. some of that, but, but this mission was kind of holding you together? 
Yes, exactly. It gave me a purpose. It gave me a purpose to channel my grief into. And um, and I, I did grieve. Don't get me wrong. I, I cried a lot at the death of my brother. Uh, but this was one of those things that I tried to take a negative and make it into a positive, as strange as that sounds, because it's still not ever going to be positive because I still lost my brother. When I landed in Saigon, then I ran into another whole host of problems that actually didn't even give me time to think about my grief for the next week or so, uh, because I was immediately deported, wound up in uh, Bangkok, uh, Thailand. Um, I didn't have the proper paperwork because I, I decided I would do this as an unauthorized escapade instead of officially, and so I wasn't welcome in South Vietnam as a teenage American civilian at the time. It was ironic because we had about a half a million people in Vietnam at that time all wanting to get out, and I'm trying to get in, and they won't let me in. Uh, but I, I eventually, with, uh, with the... That is ironic, time, isn't it? Yeah, it, I thought it was very ironic. And, uh, but I eventually made it into South Vietnam with the aid of the Southeast Asian black market, and uh, they smuggled me in for a price. And I went and so you had that money from the... What did it yeah. cost you to get in? Oh, I, caught, I spent most of the insurance money for my brother on this trip, uh-huh. uh, on the plane tickets, on paying bribes to uh, uh, the people that I met, that I met up with uh, in Southeast Asia and so on. And, uh, I actually, and by the way, everyone, this all is in the book. It's a fabulous book. I would definitely get it. How do, can people get your book? Uh, um, all bookstores carry it. Uh, if a bookstore doesn't carry it, uh, uh, they can order it for you have it in stock in a few days. You can also order it uh, online at Amazon.com or BarnesandNoble.com. Um, but it is, uh, it is a nationally published book. And you got to his unit. Yes, Ron. I did. I, I eventually made it to his unit, and uh, I was accepted overwhelmingly by his friends. And um, Did they hug you? Oh, God, yes. <laughs> That's, I just see his friends must have just loved you. Well, his friends were hardened senior enlisted sergeants, and uh, he was well liked. He was well respected by the guys in his unit. Uh, they, when they first met me, first of all, they couldn't believe that I was there. Uh, but as soon as they got past that, in about ten seconds, they totally accepted me. They hugged me. They, uh, you know, they they plied me with Budweiser beer, which was their favorite pastime in base camp, and. Uh, and I actually got accepted uh, almost as much as my brother was accepted by them, and uh, they were glad to see me, and they protected me. They, we went went through a few uh, episodes of, of uh, the war in Vietnam together. I was in country about uh, about five weeks. The book condenses it down to about a two week trip. Um, but uh, yeah, the, they were overwhelmingly accepting. They were grieving for my brother as well, which was interesting for me to see. Uh, we shed tears with uh, several of his close buddies, uh, tears of mine, tears of theirs. We toasted him with, again, with cans of Budweiser beer. Um, it was it was quite an, an experience, and in so doing, I was able to not only learn about the last days, the final days of my brother's life. I was able to bring back the ground that his head fell on when he died. Ah, uh, five, what did you do five with that? Precious stones. Uh, well, I brought back, there were five precious little stones where they pointed out exactly where he lay, where his head was on the ground. And uh, 
I, I brought back the stones, and I still have a couple of them. I gave one to my sister, one to my, uh, and one to each of my other two older brothers. who were not as close. I was closer to my brother, much more closer than they were, but uh, I, I wanted to, them to share what I had found out. So do you have any rituals that you do uh, in relationship to him? And Well, you know, with the military, uh, we're kind of, survivors are blessed with public rituals a lot, you know, Memorial Day, Veterans Day, and so on. Uh, but there is one very private thing that, uh, that I did and that I do on a daily basis. Uh, when I finish writing the manuscript and I type the end on the manuscript of Next of Kin, I went down and I went through a box of his personal effects that was sent to me right after his death. I hadn't been in this box for 30-plus years. And something compelled me to open this box and go through his things. And one of the things I found in there was a Seiko watch that I mentioned in the book that he had purchased. One of the things he had purchased just shortly before his death was a Seiko watch. And uh, I found that watch, and it had this kind of um, rotted-away old Army cloth wristband on it and I picked up that watch and it was a self-winding watch and I shook it and it started running so I took it and I cleaned it up and I put a new band on it and I wear it daily I haven't taken it off now since I finished the manuscript and uh, it loses the watch loses one minute a day <laughs> and I figure that that has some kind of uh, an effect on, on his shortened life uh, um Tom, I believe we have a caller on. Joyce? Is she there? Yes, hello. Oh, there you are. Hi. Hi, Welcome to the Joyce. show. Thank you very much. Nice to have you on. Did you have a comment for Tom or me? I do, yes. Thank, I wanted to thank Tom for sharing his incredible story. And to ask you, Tom, if you would be willing to describe your grief reactions to the loss of your parents and how your responses to their death might have differed uh, to your responses to Ron's death and maybe what they had in common? I'd be happy to. Um, I touched on this briefly before about my reaction to my parents' death, or deaths, I should say. Um, I think the, the tender age of seven did a lot to, oh, not deaden the grief, but uh, it, it was almost more of a curiosity at that time. Uh, especially when my father died because I wasn't as close to him as I was to my mother. And, uh, but going through, watching firsthand all these rituals of the funeral home and the grieving relatives and uh, the, the adult relatives I, I'm referring to, and uh, it, it was an eye-opening experience for me. Uh, for both of uh, my mother and father's Funerals only seven days apart, so I was in. It was it was almost like deja vu. I was in the same funeral home, you know, a week apart, and uh, I don't remember crying as a child over their deaths. Uh, it was this realization that they were gone. Uh, I was told by my older brother Ron. Uh, you know, he explained to me what death really meant. Um, but, uh, yeah, at the age of seven, you're not really, a little bit later, you comprehend the whole thing a little more fully. Yeah, you're, you're insulated a little bit more at a younger age, I think, from, yeah. from your true emotions, and maybe they haven't even developed enough yet. But when Ron died, uh, my world, I thought, came to an end. When I was given the notification of his death, uh, 
I mean, physically, my knees buckled. I, I had to lean against this Army sedan in this little dusty driveway where the sergeant came to report his death to me. Uh, and the grief just, it, it almost brought me to my knees. And, and the ensuing days, and uh, because, you know, here I was, I, I was 19, and I had shared more life experiences with my older brother. He would send for me in different parts of the world, and I would go and I would, I would visit him when he was on furlough somewhere. And he was, he took on the role of a guardian and, and almost as a parent figure to set me straight on, on the road to life, to a successful life. And so there was a whole lot more shared experience, plus your emotions develop more by the, as, as you mm-hmm. get older, obviously. So it was a much more raw experience. But there was a distinct difference between uh, my response to my parents' deaths and to my older brother's death. I just wanted to uh, thank Joyce uh, for being on the show. And, Ron, we've um, got an email. I mean, excuse me, I called you Ron, Tom. That's interesting. Tom, we've got an email here uh, from someone. Actually, I told someone about the book, and they read it. And uh, um, her name's Jerry. She's from Utah. And she uh, sent me an email, and she wanted to know this. She asked, uh, Tom, do you think your early life has made you more empathetic with those who suffered losses? Oh, yes, without a doubt, without a doubt. Um, like I said, I got I, I kind of learned the experience of death early in life at age seven. I learned a lot about how to experience the loss of, of someone. And then through the loss of my older brother and, and since that time, I've, I've had uh, um, other uh, losses in my life. And um, I think it is it almost is a learned thing. Unfortunately, it's something that many of us have to learn along the way, but uh, uh, the experiences are accumulative. Do you think there's a surrender aspect to it? No. In my case, no. Uh, I don't want to surrender. And I think everybody makes that choice on their own. Um, And you know, uh, one thing I wanted to, to mention, too, to the listeners is a lot of people are looking for closure mm-hmm. after a death. And I looked for closure. And I think even subconsciously, my first effort at closure of my brother's death was the trip, uh, the, you know, this weird trip that I made to Vietnam as a civilian teenager during the war. Uh, I thought I was looking for closure then. I thought if I just found out the details of his death, I could, I could close this episode and get on with it. Well, I didn't find closure there. Then, uh, many, many years later, 30 years later, it, I knew I was someday going to write a book about this. As I got older, I knew I was going to write this book. And when I wrote the manuscript and I typed the end on it, and I thought, well, okay, now maybe I have closure. And I didn't feel closure then either. And then once the book was published, I received my first copy of it from the publisher in UPS one night when I was having dinner. And I took that copy and I read it because uh, I never read my book in, in hardbound uh, manner before, mm-hmm. and I took a copy of that book and I placed it under my brother's name on the Vietnam Veterans Memorial Wall in Washington, D.C., and I thought, okay, this is going to be closure now, uh-huh. and it still wasn't closure. And so what I, when you talked about surrender, and maybe surrendering and closure are somehow related, but... Uh, 
Well, I think surrendering to me is more like you're never going to get closure. You might as well face it. Yeah, yeah, that could be. (laughs) Surrender to the idea that you're going to have closure, I think, is how I think of it. That may be a good way of stating it because there is no closure. And I think it's important that there isn't closure because if there's closure, it almost means like you want to forget about that person. And and none of us want to forget about our our, our Absolutely. Absolutely, we want to continue with those bonds, relationships, have rituals, and see where they and have them in our lives. You'll never forget your parents or Ron, or they're part of your fabric. And nobody should forget their loved Absolutely. ones. Absolutely, you should memorialize them somehow. And and I I was fortunate enough to do it by writing this book. Not everybody can write a book about their loved one, but I think there are different ways of of memorializing your loved one and. Uh, you know, some people that are able to do so, they'll set up a scholarship fund or they'll plant a tree. But I think it, when it comes right down or create to create a website, yeah, or create a website like like you. And well, you, uh, I know you wanted to mention the compassionate friends. Yes, I did, and uh, I wanted to say that when I was going through this whole process with my parents and my brother's death, I didn't know about, it. I didn't have access to an organization like Compassionate Friends, and since. I've learned about your organization of compassionate friends and, and uh, the offshoots of it, and, and so on. Uh, I think it's a it's a wonderful thing to have in, in our society, and uh, people need to know that they do have other people that they can talk with. And I had to go through this alone, and uh, you know I toughed it out, and I probably had to tough it out a whole lot tougher than I would have if I had known about an organization like Compassionate Friends. Or had somebody wonderful like you on the show. And I want to thank you so much for being on the show. You have been listening to Open to Hope Radio. You can sign up for our newsletter, Facebook, and Twitter on our homepage at opentohope.com.